0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Rounding the Earth podcast. Rounding the Earth is a popular newsletter series published on Substack, written by statistician and uh, educator Matthew Crawford. Topics of discussion range from critical analyses of conventional wisdom to Bitcoin and everything in between. And yes, of course, most recently, the COVID-19 pandemic. Our goal is a careful examination of important topics and perspectives shaping the world that too few people talk about. Subscribe to Rounding the Earth on Substack, Rumble, YouTube, and Rockfin to join a burgeoning research community and to help us unflatten the earth. My name is Liam Sturgis. I'm a musician, music producer, and writer editor coming at you live from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and I will be your host for today. But I don't do it alone. No, indeed. I'm going to now introduce you to the author of Rounding the Earth and my co host for the podcast, Matthew Crawford. Good afternoon, Matthew. Hey, Liam, how are you? I'm pretty good, thank you. We've got a bit of a later start today, um, got a bit more energy going into this. And we uh, we wanted wanted to be able to
1: to be sure that we could include uh, uh, Jessica, who just uh, traveled back from Europe to Israel. But I've been looking forward to this one for uh, a long time. Um, this is such an important topic. Uh, censorship in science. Uh, censorship in science affects the whole world because science is um, it, it's a starting point for a lot of the things that we think of as our economy, um, you know, not to mention just human knowledge in general. So um, I'm, I'm excited to have both Jessica and Kevin here today because both of them have been you know caught up in the scientific uh, censorship. And, you know, we need to talk about this.
0: Agreed. Well, let's bring them in. I'd like to introduce our guests for today, Jessica Rose and Kevin McKernan. How are you guys? <laughs> We're good.
2: I'm remarkably um, energetic.
0: Wonderful. Now, Jessica, you're you're coming off of a high of a wonderful trip you just took, am I right?
2: Yeah, I like, like literally just got out of the train and took a shower and got the plane and the train dirt off of me and now i'm sitting here in my house again so i'm really fresh from having traveled for the first time in about five years or something oh wow really yeah
0: again you guys pinned down over there huh but it was remarkably easy to travel what you said it, you were telling me before it was actually a fairly uh, a fairly easy trip uh, and fairly smooth. Uh,
2: for, for my standards, it was a magic carpet ride.
0: Well, and that we can should go-
2: really inspire people to like move about with airplanes now. Before you won't be able to. That's my message.
0: Before the experts say that that's what the evidence suggests is no more airplanes, ladies and gentlemen. Well, Kevin, this is your first time joining us on the show. Thank you so much for coming. Um, would you be interested in, uh, introducing yourself to some of the folks watching the show who may not yet be familiar with your work?
3: Sure. And I, I just got back from the wonderful, um, Baltimore visit. So it wow. as exciting as maybe where Jessica went, but, uh, uh, I was at a cannabis conference there. I've, I've been working in the cannabis field for the last 10 years, but prior to that, I worked on the Human Genome Project and then built some DNA sequencers and a couple um, startup companies that ended up uh, commercializing some of those DNA sequencers. Um, if people are in the sequencing space, you may know of one called the Solid Sequencer that was in the market um, facing off Illumina for several years, and then I've also had some fingerprints on the ion torrent system. Um, and uh, so, I've, yeah, I've been in kind of the, the genomics entrepreneurship space for a while and um, decided at one point in my career to pivot that toward targeting those tools toward um, any, any way that we could try to undermine the sort of pharmaceutical industry that would seem to be wrapping up medicine in, in very um, opaque manners. And I saw the cannabis uh, plant as one potential um, tool there that could sort of democratize uh, medicine. There's a lot of compounds that plant makes and people can grow it in their backyard and the more we can understand about it the less we need to necessarily wrap this thing up in patents and package it into the typical um you know patented pharmaceutical pipelines that we're also um so used to by now so um
1: yeah that's that's kind of uh, what i've been up to lately it's phenomenal that these that the uh technology uh for sequencing has it's leaped to a level that um a moderately wealthy hobbyist could just do it in their home now <laughs> yes
3: yeah it has um I Actually, we do some of that, and I encourage others to as well. You can now get these like pocket nanopore sequencers at about $1,000, uh, and uh, you can run like $90 flow cells on them. And uh, if you want to go study what type of yeast and mold or bacteria are in your garden, uh, you can do that. Um, I did that yesterday on somebody's cannabis plant in, uh, in Marblehead. They had something weird grown on it. We PCR'd it in the morning and had uh, amplicon sequencing on nanopores with reads mapping in the afternoon. So you can do this like in a matter of six hours. You can flip around sequence information to tell you, like, what, what stuff is growing on your plants that shouldn't be there.
1: Yeah, that, that sounds like a whole new business model for scientists. Uh, you get somebody who, you know, go to a, a, a farming community or an area with lots of, of production and, uh, and to help people figure out what's going on in their soil.
3: Yeah, you know, the, the yeast mold and bacteria are kind of easy to do. They're, those things you can survey with primers that have some... Um, There are conserved elements in all of biology, and particularly around the ribosomes. so you can find a set of primers that will amplify all organisms, known as ITS primers, and then bacteria all have 16S regions that you can amplify. The real challenge, which is what we're probably here to talk about, is there isn't such universal barcode or primer set of sequences that you can use to amplify viruses. So the virus is a real pain in the ass to go and find. You have to kind of go scrape up all the RNA that's present and go sifting through it in some way uh, to try and find the viruses. So um, <clears throat> hopefully that 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 part of the process will get a little bit more streamlined.
0: So you're saying you're saying that the mess of RNA that's out there, the difference between those kind of pseudo life forms and the other um, microorganisms that you could be attempting to sequence is that it's hard to differentiate between the the pseudo. You know the viruses and just just random genetic material in the sure. environment. There's an
3: easy an easy way to to um, filter them all out. So th- the, you know the thing about the tree of life is that everything's got ribosomes. So if you target regions like primers that amplify ribosomal sequences in the genomes, you can get everything, uh, with the exception of viruses, because viruses don't have ribosomes. Right. So uh, in order to get viruses, since they're they're sometimes DNA viruses, but oftentimes they're RNA viruses, um, you need to go in there and start pulling out all RNA and sequencing all of it. There's no way to really focus the gun, if you will, with PCR and amplify like conserved regions that everything shares. You have to just sequence everything. Uh, And uh, unfortunately viruses just don't have any kind of conserved sequence that we can fish hook them out of. So it ends up being much more expensive to go after them because you kind of have to sequence it all and then filtered it on the informatics side, on the computing
0: side. So that that sounds an awful lot different than what I've been told for the last two and a half years, but- Yeah, (laughs) well they've been using PCR to go after this one and there's a lot of debate as to how well that's been working, so
1: yeah. (laughs) Well, today we're going to talk about uh, scientific censorship, which is a topic of um, such immense import. And and both Kevin and Jessica have been involved in uh, in trying to get papers published that are important um, in, in different ways, uh, rel- you know, with respect to the pandemic. And it it feels like um, there's a steering. There's steering going on where um, papers that say certain things are being published more quickly and papers that that don't perhaps go along with uh, a chosen narrative are being suppressed or rejected or even even really just kind of, um, you know, set aside, uh, you know, wheels spinning, uh, pushed out of uh, pushed out of discussion for as long as as possible. Uh, is is really the way that I'm interpreting things, um, Jessica? Let's start with you. Um, I, I, it's been a long time now, actually. I mean, it, it, the, you you tried to publish a paper with uh, Peter McCullough, like uh, on like was this a year ago now? Yeah, what, it, it's just about this? a year. Tell, it tell was us October. about the paper and tell us what happened.
2: Yeah, it was October 15th, unless I missed my guess. That we got this creepy notification. Um, from fans, basically, uh, that there was a a temporary withdrawal notification beside the title of our published paper. Um, And yeah, it came out of the blue. Neither of us had any idea who did this. We still don't. why it was was done.
1: It was already peer-reviewed and published. And, and yeah. what was the paper on? What was the title of the paper?
2: It, uh, well, it was about myocarditis. It was it was a non um, controversial descriptive analysis of myocarditis reports from VARES. So, like basically I, I I wrote it up and then Peter put the cardiology stuff in and we we showed that hey there there are a higher number of reports in myoc- of myocarditis in bears than in previous the previous thirty years of reporting, and for the most part these were being made for young males like fifteen year olds. So um, although it was non controversial, it it did have a result that was very relevant uh, and pertinent to. Um, to everyone, I mean, parents and kids alike. And amazingly, and and probably not coincidentally, this temporary withdrawal of this fully published uh, article happened five days before the FDA verb pack meeting, where I was speaking uh, to decide whether or not to put these things into five to 11 year old kids. So go figure. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Potential motivation there to control the narrative?
2: Yeah, maybe a little bit. Yeah, there
1: it is. When when a paper is published already, um, I assume that there there are contracts signed, right? Like, can you take this paper and then just publish it elsewhere? Or or does the contract sort of keep you in place um, where that's actually a more difficult maneuver to get the information out?
2: Yeah, so that's a really good question, and I think once you enter the litigation phase, you can't just publish it somewhere else because there's some kind of like tie to the uh, yeah. There's often the situation. a um, situation
3: where you, you you sign over your copyright to the journal, and then they end up owning that copyright, so they can then go sell subscriptions and you know thirty five dollar downloads at uh, if it's not. If it's not open source, so you can you can open source them oftentimes, uh, but you have to pay them like three to five grand up front for right. open sourcing it. Um, so one way or the other, the journal wants to get its money. But unfortunately, the process of, of submitting these usually means you signed over your copyright to the journal. And then you can't really then go and copy it exactly somewhere else if they decide to put a withdrawn sticker on it. But, but there was really fascinating is that I have never seen withdrawn, put on any paper before. I've seen retracted, which is very different. Retracted, they they find and publish critiques of your work and, and, and yep. it as retracted saying, we don't believe this work anymore because of these documented critiques.
1: exactly has no, there's nothing to it. I don't know what it is. So they made up a new categorization just for you and Dr. McCullough.
2: I think so. And it was temporary withdrawal and now it's just withdrawn. And the thing is, like retraction and withdrawal. Pierre and I were talking about this at the conference and he was like being Pierre and he was like, Yes, it's just semantics. It's the same thing. And ultimately he's, he's correct. I mean, it, it has been retracted even though it doesn't have that word next to it. But the thing is you're, you're so right about the basis of doing this. Normally it's done either by the authors or by the editor. And there there has to be a definitive reason, which is usually something based in, um, in content. Like, you know, some of the bench work they found out wasn't uh, right. You know, they found an error in one of their conclusions of the experiments or, I don't know, they found a mistake somehow, but that's really not the case here. And I've had... Um, really gross uh, fact checker predators like coming after me about this and and going step by step trying to debunk the content of the work. And I'm like, listen, this was peer reviewed. This isn't something that you're going to be able to debunk. You know, it went through the process, which kind of guarantees that by the time it gets published, there aren't any errors. Yeah. Armchair debunkers.
1: Yeah. Armchair debunkers. Yeah. The, the, the only thing that's, you know, controversial about VERS, Well, I, I should say that the source of any controversy about VARES is you have a, a reporting system that is incomplete. We all know that it's incomplete. Um, it's also true that uh, more complete systems have been studied and rejected, not put in place, which, which, you know, should make someone scratch their head. I know that uh, James Lyons Weiler was involved in one, and I exchanged emails with someone who uh, worked on um, such a proposition uh, on a team at Harvard. They were um, they were paid to study. What do you want? to What do you do if you want to capture um, you know the, the the best subset of of adverse events? Um, and so you know, no one you know you have sort of signals in a sense but uh, you don't have magnitude, uh, you just have comparisons. And so, um, you know, the, the comparisons are, are meaningful in the eye of the beholder as is most, you know, scientific data, but, but we have this sort of like very extreme position um, that you can't assume that there is any more data than, than the data that, that's shown in VARES, which um, seems like a very obtuse interpretation of data in order to to do something like suggest that your paper, you know, I, I don't know, was there any conversation in the paper? I I read it many months ago, but yeah, you know, was there was there conversation in it about um, what the absolute numbers might look like?
2: You mean for myocarditis? For
1: myocarditis, yeah. I mean, we you, you have um, you know this many signals coming into VAERS, Um, but obviously, you know, the absolute number that's the one that we would love to know if we could, if we could just you know. Um, peer into a crystal ball or something, but uh, was there discussion about something like an underreporting factor?
2: Not in the paper, no. I mean, it, it wasn't,
1: uh...
2: yeah, so I don't you, think so.
1: The speculation, um, you know, uh, no, or, or, no. Or, 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 you know, uh, uh, um, informed guesswork. Uh, I, I guess it's probably, no. aspect, but you didn't even get into that and it was still nope. withdrawn. Oh, yes. Wow. Just, so this just,
2: was literally, yeah, this was literally just the numbers that came, like the raw data that came out of there. Yeah, and it was very stark. I mean, there was the data was all skewed toward the zero to twenty year olds, and primarily fifteen year old males were the ones that had the reports filed for them. There, there was no, no debating this. And and the other really interesting thing was that this was um, dose related. The the rate of reporting was like five fold higher after the second dose, which was another thing that, you know, everyone's publishing this out the yin yang now. You know, it's it's not a secret. Even the CDC and the FDA are coming forward and saying, yes, OK, young kids are at risk and there is a dose response. So it's like,
1: well, they'd even the, said that the, four months earlier in June. You know, I mean, like they right. they, they said it in is is. You know, um, they, they, they tried to make it sound like it shouldn't be a panic or that it wasn't a particularly serious issue. They used phrases like uh, mild cases of, of myocarditis, uh, quickly resolved, resolved. Um, you yeah, know, they're they're
2: uh, doing fine now. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: um, and and to, to remind folks, what is the prognosis historically of myocarditis cases?
2: What's I didn't get catch the word you uh, the prognosis?
0: Like, once diagnosed with myocarditis, historically speaking, what tends to happen right. with those patients? This- so
2: before the, the COVID maniacalness, um, and, and currently the cardiologists who are still being good cardiologists will tell you that there's no such thing as a mild and transient case of myocarditis because it's heart damage. It creates scar tissue. And you know, some of some of the cells uh of of the heart muscle, they're not reparable. They don't, you know, they don't replenish themselves. So if you have damage in certain parts of your heart, like the myocardium, which is the muscly beady part, um that's not going to repair itself. It just basically means the flexible muscly part is not going to be flexible flexible and muscly anymore. So that doesn't bode well for you, like a decade or two down the road. And if you're 15, I mean, you're looking at 25, 35 years of age, when you might be looking at a a secondary insult to your heart because of this primary insult. So, you know, it's, it's definitely not something any cardiologist that I know would would define as being mild or transient. So,
1: and Jessica, yeah. you're more expert on this than I am. But So correct me if I'm wrong. Um, there, there is sort of a rhetorical conversation that is unfortunate that goes on, uh, which is that um, the, the US military had done studies years ago. Uh, they've done more studies on heart problems amongst soldiers um, that, that might be the best data in the world if you look at it the right way. And what they found is that there were 10 times as many cases of subclinical myocarditis than there are cases of Clinical myocarditis, where somebody had enough of an issue that they went to the doc- doctor, and got a diagnosis. So you know, um, damage to the heart is something that that happens on uh, a, a spectrum, and and because there are these subclinical cases, right? Somebody can group them all together. And talk about them in a way that is misleading. You know, everything in a VARES report uh, is is a clinical case of myocarditis because that is somebody who went to a doctor and got a diagnosis. It is put into a report. So these are the ten percent on the more extreme end, or you know, that that's what we should be assuming already. Whereas uh, some some of the times the people who are sort of poo pooing the condition um, are are talking about sort of the grouping together where there are. And also subclinical cases, but we should be concerned about both. And both of them have, you know, uh, potential long-term health consequences. Um, and, yeah. and, you know, we don't even know the severity overall because with, with older people who have gotten myocarditis, um, it can cut lifespan to, um, you know, a, a single digit number of years. You know, somebody who has yeah. myocarditis in their 40s, if I understand correctly, something like um, 70% of those people do not live a full decade longer. Uh, you know, and I don't know if I have that number exactly right. I have I have notes somewhere. I probably should have pulled them up, but um, it, it is a high proportion of people who you know have greatly limited lifespans. Now, when it comes to 15 to 24 year olds, where we're seeing all these cases, I don't know if we know the lifespan effect, but we should we should be studying that. We should we shouldn't be treating it as if it's something to just you know um, dismiss to the side because at least we're doing something that saved them from COVID, even though almost none of them were really getting severe COVID.
2: Oh, absolutely. And, and just to add to that, I mean, the, 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 uh, running hypothesis as to why the myocarditis happens, which is inflammation of the myocardium is spike induced. So the thing is, if, if you've had multiple injections and you have, uh, the spike induced cytotoxicity and the immunological reaction and your, your, your um, pathologies associated with your heart, you can assume that it's not limited to your heart. You probably have other, you know, things going on, perhaps with your blood vessels, you know, because wherever this spike protein has landed, you're going to be having some kind of uh, inflammatory reaction against it. So, yeah, it, it it it's not just limited to to the thing you end up in the hospital for unfortunately. Um it could actually yeah, your the immunological imbalance is is uh is very concerning. This is where Kevin can probably pipe up because uh I mean, he's the master of the universe with this stuff. <laughs>
3: Well, I, yeah, I, I, I haven't up with the various stuff like you have, Jess, but I, I have been seeing a couple of papers here that come through from Tracy Hogue and a few others suggesting that yep. the frequency of this is keeps every time they measure it, it keeps getting more frequent. Yeah, uh, it seems like they initially were saying, ah, it's one in two million. And anyone who says less than that's a conspiracy yeah, And then they're like, ah, it's one in hundred thousand. And then, ah, it's one in fifty thousand. Oh, Now it might be one in three thousand. Um, yeah. And I don't know where the dust has settled on that other than I see the trajectories. It keeps getting more and more frequent. And um, the few conversations I've had with McCullough on this is that um, it's going underdiagnosed because um, they're not getting MRIs involved. Like if you just look for exactly. elevated sort of, levels and if you just look for like D-dimer levels, you miss a lot of the cases. You got to get an MRI involved to see. You the need actual- a
2: cardiac MRI. Exactly. Yeah. Yep.
3: But yeah, I also no heard doubt. That this is just the tip, right? I mean, the, the like myocarditis is something that has a clinical feature that we can look for. We can look for troponin levels, D dimers, and, and and these cardiac MRIs. There's a whole host of other stuff going on that we don't have good bio, biomarkers for. Uh, that, yeah. that seem to be you know polluting theirs with all these other adverse events. I mean, you happen to pick out the one that they couldn't deny, which I think is great. Like they, even they admit myocarditis. Uh, But uh, we're now starting to question, like, what about all the amyloids? What about CJD? What about cancer? What about all of those things, which have uh, really ambiguous diseases that are much harder for us to, like, pin down? Um, Those ones are getting kind of brushed under the rug, but they may, in fact, be as frequent or more. Yeah, that's exactly
2: what I was just going to say. It's like there there are cases that have been reported as part of case reports of uh, cardiac amyloidosis which may in fact, you know, account for a lot of diagnosed myocarditis um, cases. So in my opinion, I even wrote a Substack about this. It's possible that all of these myocarditis diagnoses might actually be cardiac amyloidosis because it manifests really similarly. So the tests to determine the difference between these are, they, they require precision and, and also a like a knowledge uh, of the potential for cardiac amyloidosis because I, d- I don't know, I'm not a cardiologist, but if you get a kid showing up in your clinic, a 15-year-old with a heart issue, like chest pain and stuff, how how likely is it or is it not that you're going to suspect cardiac amyloidosis? It's probably not likely, but it might very well be what's happening to that kid.
3: Yeah, we, we just had... Um... I live in a small town of about 20,000 people or so in, in Massachusetts. And just this week, three people in their 40s just died suddenly, unexpectedly. Wow. And, you uh, know, I don't know anything about their VAC status, but, you know, w- w- I know, you know, that, that they're all healthy. They weren't overweight or they're all people who went to the gym and were, you know, very health conscious.
1: I uh, and- was at a meetup you know, on Friday uh, where a- almost everyone at the table had a story of, of a personal friend who had died, um, you know, like working age people.
3: I, and I don't have that exactly. for COVID. i you know if 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 I have any story like that for Covid they're eighty right they're not yeah 40.
0: yeah I, I'm I, was sad walking. To say I' i I'm sad to say i I managed to make it uh you know a year and a half without losing a friend to you know no one is saying it was cause of the shot, but now I've had a friend in who's twenty five have a spontaneous brain bleed that killed her instantly while just working in bed.
2: Holy
0: and, shit. Yeah. So you're right. Even? I think. Every, yeah. Yeah.
2: 25.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, how it's many.
2: Uh, how many shots?
0: Unclear. I, 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 I'm I, not sure. It's not part of the discussion, but the point is we shouldn't have to get to that point in 25 is a, is it egregious case, but even people in their forties, you know the amount of obituaries I sometimes go in and, and check because, frankly, there's a lot of friends who I haven't heard from in a while. Um, so I, I do go, f- you know, every once in a while, just just to see what's going on. And the amount of you know sudden heart attack at home, passed away unexpectedly, even in the 40s. I, I'm not an expert. That doesn't seem normal to me. No,
2: no, it's not. And well, we've had our uh, share of days too. Yeah. Yeah. On the way
0: from, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, on the way from for- one venue. Sorry, uh, censorship is dangerous for all kinds of reasons, but this is the extreme case right here. This is people having a signal that they or their child could be immediately affected by a new experimental product. Um, This is the most pernicious form of censorship that that I've ever been around that was that that directly impacted people around me. I'm sure I'm sure that we could find cases from you know uh, the the Soviet Union or or from you know communist China or something like that that are that are more extreme perhaps. But it, embedded within science, this should be the canary in the coal mine that there is something very wrong with with the way that our entire society is being governed on this level. Whatever the incentives are, right. wherever they come from, we should be working and figuring them out. Um, but for the moment, uh, Kevin, I'd like for you to, to tell us about um, the paper that uh, you were you were working also with, McCullough, weren't you?
3: Yes. Yeah. So um, we, we had a paper that got through. It got two positive reviews. Uh, we, we submitted this to a Hindawi journal. And um, after the t- reviews came back favorable saying, you know, adjust some things here and there and it's good to go, um, the editors then alerted us that it was going to go to some additional uh, review board. Some, uh, I think they called it a research integrity review, which was never disclosed to us upon submitting this or signing off on any copyright to them. Um, and uh, that just just sat there for months. And we kept harassing them and sending the notes as to, you know, what, what's going on, what's next. Um, so I documented all of, all of the um, back and forth I had with the journal on this. It's, uh, it's up on my sub stack now. You can see all of the... Kind of delay tactics that 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 they that they've had in uh, the timeline as to how long they actually sat on this. Uh, and and, just and that- if I
1: could interject, Kevin says he harassed them. Um, what Kevin did was sort of a you know once every week or two appropriate email request. What is the status of what is going on? Because what was going on was unusual. It was being unusually drawn out. And the responses I've read the responses that he got um, were just sort of like, "I'll let you know when this." this team that the shadowy team of, of people who's, who's looking at this, um, you know, uh, uh, have a decision, uh, they haven't talked to me yet. Like they weren't really like this intermediary didn't seem real motivated to actually, you know, get this science published.
3: Yeah. So this, this paper went into some of the molecular biology behind how the spike protein is different in the vaccine than it is in the virus. And there, and there's some differences that are really important. And sadly, the, the NIH likes to obfuscate this. They'll, you'll see them post on their, on their Twitter feeds that, oh, mRNA is natural. It's just gonna go in your body and then disappear. And uh, it's just like natural RNA, nothing to worry about. The other side of the NIH is filing patents which have been awarded on these mRNAs being not natural. In fact, the only way that you get a patent awarded is if you can prove that it was man-modified in some way. So they're talking out of both sides of their mouth. Their patent attorneys are, are convincing the USPTO that the mRNA, mRNAs are so radically different that they're inventive and they need to have patents, which they've been awarded and they have been licensed to Moderna. And the other side of them is telling the public that, oh, they're natural, don't worry about them. They'll, they'll go in and, c- and just go away and you don't need to worry about this uh, this uh, this messenger RNA that we're, that we're injecting you with. So we kind of dissected all that and showed that uh, several critical things changed from the Wuhan sequence. They, they codon optimized it, which meant they actually changed the DNA sequence or the RNA sequence on these things quite substantially such that the, the GC content in the RNA changed radically. That's, uh, the Gs and Cs are much stickier bases. So when you change those, all the secondary structure in the RNA changes, you get all these quadruplex Gs which attract all types of other types of regulatory elements. So they really radically change the biology of the mRNA from that, that which was in the virus. As you all know, the delivery is different. You're not getting this in your nose and having it replicated for seven days, you're getting it all in about seven seconds. Uh, so you get a bolus injection of these things, some of which could go into your veins and cause all types of epithelial damage just by hitting veins. Um, and so, uh, you know, we tended to focus a lot more on the spike. Uh, this is also done a year ago, but I do think there's, there's some credence to the fact that no one's paying really attention to the lipid nanoparticles and how toxic those things are, uh, and what that does to your epithelial cells. Uh, Mark Gierdo is doing a lot of this work, which is really good to see. Uh, but I, I, think there's been this intense focus on spike at the last year, but I think it is time we, 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 we consider there can be more than one thing going wrong here. The virus right. doesn't have these lipid nanoparticles.
1: Yeah, Uh, and and we should we should worry like the the fact that authorities don't seem to be interested in studying and disentangling these two variables like is the spike causing a whole lot of damage is the lipid nanoparticle are the lipid nanoparticles causing a whole lot of damage and which is which, right? They Um,
3: normally do. I mean, they normally do what's called a vehicle control. vehicle being the substance that is delivering your drug is your vehicle. And they they shoot people with blanks, known as vehicle blanks. And you can't find data on vehicle blanks for these things. That would tell you if the lipid nanoparticles without any mRNA were themselves toxic. Uh, I think there's been some studies in mice about this, and they are pretty toxic in mice, but uh, I've not seen it done in humans. Uh, And so... um, we're, we're, you know, we're stuck looking at an experiment where the spike mRNA is combined with this other novel vehicle that we're using, and we don't really know which one's causing uh, all the pain. There's been a lot of study on spike, which I, I do think has some toxicity to it, as, as um, others have suggested. But uh, there, there's, I think, none of attention put put on the uh, the lipid nanoparticles and what they're doing. But. Uh, you know, anyway, lo and behold, this this spelled out the, the fact that the the sequences were in fact different, uh, and that you're probably getting a higher concentration of the spike being expressed through the vaccine than you are through the uh, the virus just because the numbers, they inject 40 trillion of these things into you, and it's probably not faithfully uh, replicated in your cells like the viruses. The virus has all types of replicated machinery that has error-proofing polymerases. You don't necessarily have the benefit of that when you put in pseudouridine, which is a base modification they put in the RNAs, that makes the transcription error go up three to three to five-fold and makes the translational error rate go up perhaps into the tenfold. Uh, so there's all this error going on. And there's documentation at the EMA, which is the the European version of the FDA, saying that when they look at these things getting expressed in cells, they have all these truncated proteins and smears on gels, and they have to go back and characterize these things more carefully. And effectively, they're seeing that these viruses or these mRNAs do not produce a perfect protein like we're used to seeing with the the virus. We're getting some type of shotgun library out of this thing uh, that's making a mess, and we can't really predict what all that's going to do. Uh, but they don't want to talk about that so um, I think that's been the main reason they've they've um, been you know suppressing what we what we have here I mean the preprint's out anyone can read it but you know naturally what happens in in uh, academic circles is it isn't through peer review everyone just discards it and, and smears it saying oh it's, it's it's been lingering as a preprint for a year forget about it
0: well, and, and I think you're right. The pseudouridine really messes things up. If if I'm not mistaken, there's even instances documented prior to COVID where its use in this context caused the... Uh, the essentially, it's my understanding at the end of these sequences, you have what's called a stop codon, which is yes. where... You, you it, it knows to stop transcribing whatever it's being told to. And it's my understanding, and you correct the, me on the science after if if I make a mistake, but the pseudouridine can cause, in fact, that stop codon to not be expressed or not to be recognized. And then yes. who knows what's coming. You know, The stop codon still has a tail of a couple of other things. Um, oh, it's got a long tail,
3: actually. In the case of the Pfizer vaccine, there's an entire GP-130 peptide that's human after the stop right. codon. And the very so shots that issue. That, that, um, that Pfizer used are the ones documented to be to not work well with sutiuridine. Right. Uh, so that, so that, there's a question as to why. Yeah. Yeah. So but then it, 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 the, the the problem with that is if if this is happening, we don't have evidence yet that this exact thing is happening. Uh, I'd love to see mass spec evidence of this. Uh, there is evidence. I, I, I push it toward the Patterson lab. Has a preprint out showing that there are mutated spike proteins found in patients that are vaccinated, but not in patients that are sick with the virus, oh, right? No. That's, that's something that, that, um, and they listed some of the, 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 mutated, uh, spike proteins they are finding in the vaccinated. The only thing I can imagine as to how that can occur is that the pseudo are getting misread. Uh, and yeah. so you get these other amino acids, uh, coming out now, uh, the way that they did this was using mass specs and they don't get the entire protein sequence. They get, they get pieces of like 10 to 15 amino acids and they can see that there's mutations in there that are, that are spike derived. Uh, but what has um, not been seen yet is any documentation that it is reading through those stop codons and creating a chimeric protein, which would be a human spike chimera, which you would not want to have. That would create autoantibodies, that would create an autoimmune problem. Uh, right. Now and, and we this. are
1: seeing now uh, evidence of cytokine storms after our vaccination. Yes.
3: That's that's indeed the case, and there's controversy over what's driving that. Um, Chang et al. published a few papers suggesting it's the SAB domain, which is right next to the Fear and site, which arguably was engineered and put into this thing. Um, And uh, that is uh, another paper came out recently, kind of contesting it, but it doesn't look very uh, like it. It tested the entire motif; it just tested one region of it.
1: If I could jump in, I want to make an analogy. Tell me how how good this analogy is. Um, The pseudo uridine because it's not read or you know processed quite as easily as a natural base. You know, A T A C T G. Um, you know, you've got kind of like a zipper that that kind of gets stuck along the way. Yes, and and results in sort of a, a random occurrence of messed up you know protein or protein ish you know, uh, amino acid sequences that that you know it it, it may be that that randomness itself uh can lead to any number of problems and we we don't even know exactly how many mrna are getting in each cell it looks like dozens yeah probably yeah i think the lipid
3: nanoparticles have hundreds in each of them and um so when they do hit a cell the cell gets a hundred maybe hundred to a thousand of these things
1: yeah that's a lot of collisions kind of gumming up the works potentially uh, you know, so it it, is it's considering that
3: there, there's a very aggressive um, uh, promoter on these things. They they picked the promoter out of one of the more powerful promoters uh, in the human genome is out of blood cells, because blood red blood cells don't yeah. have any nucleus. Um, yeah. And so they have the RNAs that are in red blood cells have to last. So they have these really strong promoters on them. They, they grab that promoter and put it on the five prime end of these vaccines. So they're very strong promoters, and the lipid nanoparticles are so large that they're delivering usually hundreds to thousands of these per cell. Um, so it really takes over, I think, the, the, the cell's biology when you deliver that many RNAs with strong promoters that don't decay easily. Uh, and then they also have this other signature that I think all the cells freak out about is that the cells, are they usually have like 1% to 2% of the uracils in mRNAs have a pseudouridine on them. You're now presenting the cell with the, the messages that are 100% decorated with pseudouridine. That throws off an entire pseudouridine cascade um, system because those... The the regulation of putting this particular methyl group on uracils is a tightly regulated uh, system. It tends to be putting them on nuclear RNAs that are snow RNAs, and they're enzymes that put them on and take them off. So if you flood the cell with with messages that have this, the enzymes that put them on and take them off are going to get overwhelmed because they're going to see they suddenly have way too much substrate around, and it's going to become a sink for them. Uh, So those enzymes, if you look in, in, they're called pus enzymes for pseudouridine uh, synthesis. Uh, And if you look into the biology of those things, they're involved in telomere maintenance. They're involved in uh, sensinence of the cells and the cell cycle. They're very important to uh, apoptosis and uh, in in the cell cycle. So, you know, I don't know what happens when you flood cells with these things. I think we're finding out in real time, unfortunately. But uh, it is, uh, it's not something to just be monkeyed with. And as you said, Matthew, the zipper is a great analogy. Uh, only sometimes the zipper stops dead. And that's why I think we have these fragmentation issues. You hear about the EMA saying the RNA has got poor RNA integrity. I don't think that is the RNA breaking down because of the cold chain. I think that is an artifact of manufacturing this with a base that the polymerase does not like. It just stalls on it. and makes all types of truncated versions of the message that they can't necessarily clean out. Uh, yeah, Robert so that- Malone has
1: written on this a bit. Um, and, you know, I, I, don't have the background to, uh, to read uh, uh, completely everything that he's written about it. Um, but I, but I'm sort of gradually absorbing now. And, and it, it, this seems like um, it, if somebody came to you and said, you know, we're going to put something into your body that does um, that is synthetic biology, you know, and, and synthetic, you know, I, I, I'm not sure what the right wording is here. We're, we're going to put machinery into your body, and we don't know how it's going to change the clockwork mechanism. And I, and I don't want to like over describe what goes on in human biology or anything. I just want to describe the fact that it's something different. It's something that changes the mechanistic workings of a, a, of the human body on a very important, you know, micro level. And, and we don't know what's going to happen. That seems like the kind of thing that that a rational human would want to see studied over a long period gradually put in place. Um, but, you know, we're, we're trying I think to- the, a, good,
3: a good way to, to look at the hypocrisy that's going on is if you were to just go back maybe two years in time, I think you might, you guys might remember when the world just freaked out about two CRISPR babies, right? Oh. Like andorisms were had, right? Like people went nuts that the Chinese went along and modified two children To have a ccr5 mutation because they would be that would make them resistant to hiv and they had hiv parents happens to be also associated with higher intelligence they were criticized for them perhaps doing eugenics right um so they they went they went nuts and like totally canceled this guy hung him out to dry i think they may even thrown him in jail his name was he i think he was his uh was his last name now fast forward add a little fear into the mix and we're going to inject a billion people with a liability-free product that's that's basically a metagenesis reaction. We don't know. We don't have it really well characterized, and no one can look at the ingredients. And uh, we're going to give Pfizer hundred billion dollars for doing it.
1: Yeah. Are, are we watching an arranged narrative where everybody is sold on being afraid that China will get ahead in mm. in some sort of human engineering project? Therefore, let us experiment on all of you.
3: Uh, yeah. It's it's bizarre. I don't understand how these folks um, flipped like this, other than fear. I, I can see you know oh, this might affect me. They don't want to admit this, that they're, they're encouraging everyone to do this for, for, to save their own hide. Irony is I, it's probably not saving their hide. But
1: I, I think that, that there's you know, sort of carefully arranged um, proxy experts um, who, who create uh, an illusion that there is some sort of consensus view um, e- even though we're sort of still studying this one step at a time and, and we don't know what's happening. But um, I think this is part of what the censorship is about. Uh, Charles Rixie uh, commented on a Twitter thread that we were in um, talking about how uh, uh, it, it's, it's not just that some people who are outside of the proposed narrative are being censored, but also how um, certain people seem to be fast-tracked in order to build the story so that it can that be and cemented in people's minds before it can be you know, challenged in the public sphere. And so yes, we have, yes. it, it looks like we have uh, a carefully, um, and, and I'm sure that whoever is in charge of this has studied the way that it works, right? Uh, yes, people yes. have studied, you know, you repeat, uh, a false fact so many times, and you know, I've heard seven times, I don't know if that's an actually studied number, but you repeated enough times and it's actually hard to get people to move from that position. It was very hard, for instance, for people to accept that ulcers were caused by um, H. Uh, Pylori. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, did, did one of those guys win a Nobel Prize for discovering that, but they were like roasted for a decade? I don't, it's a good,
3: I know some of the folks that were involved in that. I think genome therapeutics um, was engaged in some <laughs> of the work, but I don't, I don't know uh, what came of it in terms of a, a Nobel prize, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if it was, yeah, at first it's, it's been ridiculed. Uh, and then, you know, a decade later, everyone accepts
1: it. Yeah, it was ridiculed harshly. Um, well,
3: so some of this ridicule, I, I think it's important to understand the mechanics of the peer review system, um, which, which drives a lot of this because it's not very different, surprisingly, than the mainstream mer- like, the mainstream media narrative that everyone's like, oh, of course. I mean, if, if anyone's half awake now, they know that pharma is like advertising between every other advertisement on TV. You know, if it's not Cialis or some like erection medicine, it's, it's, it's some other autoimmune disease uh, thing like call your doctor and ask, right? So some, somewhere between 50 and 70% of the, of the money going into mainstream media is being funded by pharma now. So they pretty much call the shots. And that's no surprise. I think everyone, no one gets their medical advice anymore from Fox or CNN, hopefully. Some do. But uh, I think most of us don't. I think a very similar artifact is happening in peer-reviewed science in that there all of these journals that place them as the intermediary between researchers and reviewers, they're just a middleman. But they're a middleman that gets advertisement dollars. Uh, and they get a lot of money through advertisements like, you know, single page ads and science. I remember when we were building sequencers and putting them out there, they're like 10 to 20 grand. And I don't know what they are today. That was back in 2006, probably more today. Um, so I think dollars,
1: what's that? Those advertising dollars come from somewhere. And one thing that, that both of you have brought up in different ways is there's intellectual property going on. And I think that this is one of the worries, one of the things that we should be worried about, especially because. I, I don't think that that lawyers and courts um, have um, have the, the understanding to properly dictate what's going on with these patents, to properly adjudicate over what's going right. on. And I think that this is this is part of the motivation and it's part of what people should be worried about and come together and have you know, a larger conversation about. Because if, if where this goes is you have a, a small number of corporations with highly controlling patents because during a moment of, of, of mass world confusion, nobody was able to challenge, you know, the, the way the system was being built. And meanwhile, uh, wealth was being shifted around. We have had great wealth transfers uh, yeah. during the pandemic. People should should look at the, the money. People say look at the money in terms of drug profits. This is much larger. The future of, of patent medicine is a much, much larger pool of money than anything that Pfizer and Moderna will make off of these vaccines short term and uh, probably even dwarfs all the money that runs through the nih
3: yeah, nih is only about 42 billion a year so uh pfizer and uh, moderna each you know rake that in on on, on just COVID shots uh, per year so um you know together uh combined yeah they, they dwarf the nih but the nih is lucky enough that they're probably going to get five percent of that because their patents are involved uh, which is where I think a lot of the conflict lies is if you got Francis and Fauci running around pushing this narrative, but um, they are the beneficiaries of uh, of the success of these vaccine programs, not so much ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine, which is why I think those were uh, scuttled by
1: those folks. So uh, Jessica, if I could go back to you, do, do you and uh, and Peter McCullough have uh, copyright back on your paper that was withdrawn by whoever? The editor or or uh, the journal that you had submitted it to
2: uh to be honest i'm not sure because he he took over that uh, the litigation part of it so i think it was offered back uh but i don't know if we actually got it back
0: so you're like we'd prefer if you just published it guys <laughs> yeah. you know i, yeah. I, I do I recall um, Dr. McCullough mentioning that there was there were it was like, at, we it oh shoot sorry mistake. hold on sorry I'm having a noob moment my mistake okay I don't know if you guys could even hear that sorry about that but I do remember Dr. McCullough talking about having to pursue Elsevier which is the overarching yes, company the yeah
3: are, are they, the, company what is that, uh, that bought uh, Robert Maxwell's uh, publishing company many years ago
0: interesting. Uh, yeah. Really? What, w- yep. What was his company called? What 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 was it before uh, it got I think bought? It
3: was uh, Maxwell Press initially, and then uh, he had another name, uh, an intermediary name before that. Let me see if I can dig it up. It's in that Guardian article I put in the in the, in the chat link.
2: Wow, I didn't know that.
3: Yeah. Yeah, Elsevier's yeah, um, one of their board members had it out with me on Twitter when I tried to bring this up. They didn't like us raising this story from. It was yeah, good. but
1: they didn't. hold <laughs> Yeah, you know, uh, if you don't want to be known for doing business with shady people, don't do business with shady people. <laughs> um, so you know, we, we we've gone down the rabbit hole a little bit with um with patent medicine with with intellectual property in general. Um, I'm one of those people who grew up and naively believed that intellectual property was probably just always a good thing. Somebody invents something, you give them, you know, sort of. Uh, enough credit for it that they can make a living off of that thing. Um, but you know, it, it, I quickly realized, uh, you know, in, in the real world, that um, that intellectual property controls and steers a lot more than people realize, and that the game of obtaining it and blocking it and all you know, accruing it uh, is, is a very, very ugly game. And I, I've I've grown to the point where um, where I, I kind of support any initiative. Uh, technological or policy-wise, but I think it's going to have to come from the, the technological end um, that nerfs intellectual property law, um, or, or somehow you know um, the incentives that we might want in intellectual property law can be spread out in other ways. And yeah. uh, and Kevin, um, you've been involved in. Um, a proof of concept project um, that I think it, it, is one of the best projects I've ever seen as far as uh, blockchain goes. And oh, I'd like for you, you to talk about that. that. And and I'd like for, you know, um, I, I know that there is at least one initiative to make a journal that is on the blockchain. I don't know how well done it is or it's going to be. But um, uh, so in 2018, tell, tell us about your um, cannabis genome project.
3: So um, we, we have, we're growing frustrated with, uh, with, this type, these types of games that happen in peer review. I mean, um, for some context, we actually sequenced a cannabis genome with an Illumina platform in 2011, and just put it live because we didn't want to deal with um, the headache of, of writing up a paper and everything. And it got picked up by um, it got picked up by Nature News, and they kind of mocked it as like a Cheech and Chong project. And of course, you know, eight years or ten years later, they then then dedicated a whole issue to cannabis. You know, so this is a classic <laughs> thing that when you're kind of ahead of the curve, they mock you. Because all the incumbents are funding nature, you know they have you know drug drug money that's in there, and drug money doesn't doesn't like cannabis because it's a threat to their um, uh, to a lot of their their pain meds. But so we decided to do this project again when the sequencers advanced to the point where they could actually manage this genome. The cannabis genome you really can't sequence with Illumina technology um, from a de novo assembly standpoint. You can resequence it with it once you have a good reference, but to build a good reference you need these zero mode waveguide tools, these uh, PacBio sequencers. So. We pitched um, to Dash, which is a, a distributed autonomous organization. This is like a cryptocurrency that um, instead of just giving all the rewards to the miners at every block, it, it, it shovels like 10 percent aside into a treasury. And then the people who happen to have at least a thousand of these currency units can vote on how to use that treasury. They're called master nodes. You have to you have to run a node that can. Powerful enough to, to manage the blocks and, and, and move the blocks around at the right speed and also have enough staked currency there. Uh, I think in this case, it was a thousand dash you had to have to be node. So these 4,200 nodes all got together, voted on a proposal to fund it. And the first two times it failed because they they're, you know things they wanted to see fixed and addressed. And the third time they finally funded it. Um, and it does cost you to you, it cost you five Dash to apply. So it's not like just free money. You have to have some skin in the game. And at the time Dash was somewhere like $800 to1,000. So it was expensive to apply, right? Um, so that when it was awarded, of course, the currency, you know, is volatile, and it went from 800 to 400 in the course of the 5 month project. We still managed to get the genome done and published in five months, uh, put it public and then, and then wrote this, um, uh, this particular, Manuscript that describes how we did it and as much of the manuscript is dedicated to how we did dealt with the cryptocurrencies of this because that was new to all of our audience whereas sequencing genomes was uh, I think most people who read my work know, know how to do that. Um, but instead of putting this to peer review, we decided let's stay with a the cryptocurrency theme and we reserved $3,000 worth of dash that we could use to recruit reviewers to come and review the paper. And so three reviewers signed up. We gave them $500 up front in Dash, $500 worth of Dash up front, and 500 upon completion if they completed in a week because we wanted this done quickly. That's something you can't control in normal peer review is there's, you don't know who the reviewers are. You can't incentivize them uh, to do things quickly. And um, they're not; it's not always transparent as to who they are and what they wrote. Like when you get your reviews back, the journal doesn't necessarily doesn't always put those reviews public. Some journals are doing that now. I, I tend to gravitate to the journals that do that, but a lot of them keep all that stuff secret.
1: So this was a project yeah, if, where, if I could, if I could interject, uh, this feels like the incentives uh, are 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 twisted in the system almost um, for the expressed purpose of putting control in the hands of the wrong people. A a lot of the reviewers, and I've I've seen this firsthand, um, being married to a a research scientist, but also with with a number of friends sharing information with me very often, um, the person who is peer reviewed, you may not know who they are, but you might, uh, given the way they talk about uh, the research they're reviewing, yes. and very often they're they're reviewing research in their field, which which you know it, it makes a certain sense. But also, um, if it contradicts any of their prior research, then it you have be. a conflict of interest going on. So if you're not paying people, the people who have the most incentive are the people who have the most incentive to protect their research, um, and that's just, that's just one of the perverse incentives that goes on.
3: The, the other incentive that happens when this is all free and there isn't a pricing signal is that you tend to enrich for people who have spare time. I mean, no one wants this, half the reviews are turned down by journals because the people don't have time to do them. So they just, they, they initially sign up and say, oh, sorry, I got busy, I couldn't do it, I relinquished it, give it to somebody else. Um, so you're, you're creating a system that is enriching for people who either don't value their time or have spare time. You want the inverse in a, in a, in a healthy market, is you want to put incentives in place as long as they're transparent everyone knows what's going on. It's not like money isn't involved in peer review. We're giving out money, like $3,000 for review. We're just giving it to the journal. None of them are getting to the reviewers. I argue all of it should go to the reviewers and very little to the journals because the journals don't add any value. They're just a publication house, which you can do with a website now. And maybe they can source, they can source people, right? They have good contact lists. But, this re- but that good contact list is another reason why they don't want to put the reviewers public because then it gives away their contact lists. Right. Uh but we want the viewers public because you, you'll notice um if you're gonna do a review that you put your name on, you do a much more thorough review than one that you don't have to put your name on. All right. and yeah. and, and, uh, and so and, you,
1: you, and if you just have a network of reviewers without these these journals that are protecting their they have this to source these
3: with, with LinkedIn, the internet, Twitter, cryptocurrency. The,
1: the honest reviewers should want this. The honest yes. reviewers should want to cut the journals out um, of the of the control process. Um, you know, uh, it, it gives them, it gives them, it gives the reviewers, the scientists, more status and more wealth, and and that's exactly. that's a positive thing when the incentives are attached to honest research and honest uh, the process. Other thing,
3: the other thing pricing signals do is they can, get, they can speciate various forms of peer review, right? Like some papers are really large, heavy papers, and they should not be done with a $3,000 review of three people. They might need 10. Other ones are really quick papers that only need a reviewer, right? But we, we have the socialist system of review right now where it's all the same. It's one size fits all. It's always three reviewers, and we do this, and that's the same way everywhere. There isn't an option for you to like pay extra and say, "I don't want you to just read this. I want you to pick up a pipette and replicate these particular aspects of the yeah. study, and I'll pay you twenty grand more for that." Because when it comes out and all my and all of our market reads it, they'll say, "Wow, someone actually picked up pipettes and replicated it. I, I'm going to believe that and buy that, or or, or go reproduce yeah, they- that."
1: <clears throat> there's got to be some serious low-hanging fruit. You know, cannabis seems like it, it is—it's one of the obvious ones, right? It, it's this plant that's been suppressed in weird ways for nonsensical reasons, or for ninety-eight percent nonsensical reasons. Uh, and and there's there's weird, you know, patent grabbing going on now. But uh, th- there's probably a lot of low-hanging fruit where the public will simply jump in and fund this. You know, as a blockchain process. Like, I, I guess the your funders were just. People out there in the Dash network, they were, the they were in world. the
3: Dash community, so it came out of the Dash Treasury, so it had to get voted on by you know over X number of the master masternodes had to approve
1: it. But if so it weren't were for that, good but if that weren't people. the case, heck, you know, I, I would have donated a hundred dollars to something like that. I know how important cannabis is to farmers and and you know, land, and there, there are just so many things that we need to understand about it better and to keep. You know a centralized pool from getting control um I, I i want you to go on with this but i want to jump to jessica for just a moment because you know kevin kevin is in a sense i mean he he's the the center node of of a new process for scientific publication so you know, jessica of course you know kevin personally now but are, are you hearing discussion are, are there many scientists who know that that blockchain is there and potentially a solution you know, are are you seeing that information filter in your community?
2: Uh, no, but I, I I wouldn't take that as any indication because I don't have a lot of communication. Um, I I actually wasn't so aware. So if that's any indication, um, no, this is fantastic. The whole time we've been talking here, I've been thinking I, I'm really proud to be a part of this particular. Uh, episode because this is invaluable what Kevin's saying. I mean everybody yeah, yeah, absolutely. needs to. Do
0: this. If
1: there's a silver lining of the pandemic, it's kind of like you know sometimes in war there's invention. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I, exactly. I, I, you know the invention began before this war, but uh, but you know um, it, you no know, one Kevin appreciated it, its value.
3: I, I think that what happened with COVID is it crystallized that we need something like this. We need absolutely. a way to get around yeah. the journals. And, and yeah, I don't, I don't propose to have the best way to do it. It's just like, we experimented with one mechanism, but I, but it's open source. Anyone can try to mutate the incentive plan. Like it doesn't have to be 500 up front, 500 back, you know, there can be different types of incentives. You know, I I don't necessarily think it has to be all cash, but, um, I do feel strongly that, um, the, the major pushback we get is you can't have money in this, you're bribing your reviewers. Right. And it's like, I don't think it's a bribe if you're paying specialists for their valuable time. And you're transparent about it, like when you when you go yeah. get a, you're a physician to like check out your health condition, you pay them, and you're looking for top dollar advice. You know, you don't, you don't necessarily go to free ones. Uh, although I, I also, have a lot of people who do it for free.
1: I, I'm, not, I'm not I'm not shooting on that. Yeah, but- th- there's this is very very weird thing that goes on with people where some things they want to be free for some reason. It, like it's it sort of locked in their in their consciousness, whether it's part of propaganda or their schooling or just the, the ideology that they grew up with. But we have to think in terms of, um, of incentives and where, where it is that they steer people. That's probably the, the best way to think about it is the incentives. But the incentives, just they, they become more natural. Everyone who participates in the process will gain um, status in the most natural, appropriate way, according to the way mm-hmm. that they participate. So any any reviewer who takes their time and professionally sells their time, you know, most of the time they're going to be selling it to a laboratory that they work with or their own business or whatever, or their, their academic community. But every now and then, if they go sell their time here, um, they're doing so. And, but they're, they're also in a sense, taking their own risk. It's almost like an entrepreneurial risk. They are laying out how they think about the science being conducted and communicating with another person doing science. And, and but for the most part, I think I think ninety something percent of the time, what we're going to see is that's a that's like a, a sharing, a positive feedback loop that makes it all better, and people are going to see why that is worth some of the dollars involved in science. Um, I, yeah, you know, it's 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 just so good to imagine. I mean,
3: it eventually. I hate to use the blue checkmark analogy because that's so poor in Twitter, but <laughs> but you know, you, you can imagine reviewers. That become sought after because they're very good in particular fields, and and the, the the price signal will begin to convey those things. Price signals can also convey urgency. Some <clears> papers <throat> that need to get reviewed quickly, you can put higher dollar dollar amounts on. Uh, ones that aren't so urgent, you 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 can downwrite. It's almost like an Uber app in many ways for review. You just have to. I just think it's important that there are pricing signals involved so that you can deal with clearing of of um, and prioritizing backlogs. You know, and uh, it's. fundamental pricing theory from austrian economics and we don't have it in 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 this uh peer review system and i think that showcases itself in all of these broken attributes that it takes like six months just like you know socialized healthcare can take six months and there isn't any way to prioritize work and no one really wants to contribute to this labor pool because there's often no credit for it no money for it and uh that leads to people just kind of you know peer reviewing stuff in the bathroom and throwing it over the wall and and uh so you get a lot of junk that comes through uh, as I mentioned in that video, the top journals out there have the highest retraction rates right now. Right? You, you look at New England Journal of Medicine, Lancet. These 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 are considered the top tier journals, but the retraction rates are higher there. Uh, there's some psychology around probably why that is. Um, but we're also seeing the replication crisis continue to balloon. Like more and more papers are coming through that people can't reproduce. Uh, because I, I think it's the fundamentals of the peer review system are just are just completely broken and socialized, and they need uh, to invert.
1: And, and let's be fair. The replication crisis is a really kind way to describe that because there there's a certain amount of that which is just you know honest error. There's a certain amount of that which is absolutely corruption. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, one thing that that many people may not know, and and I'm gonna. I'm going to take a moment to talk about this. I haven't talked about it publicly many times, but um, there are paper mills. I was asked to participate in one when I was in college. Uh, I I worked for the summer at the Institute for Biomedical Computing, which was part of the Human Genome Project in in 1995 and uh, and finished my project and wound up sort of being pushed out to biological laboratories where I could help explain, um, you know, statistical analysis of genetic stuff to biologists who were sort of stepping into the world of genetics, you know, helping them walk through, like, why is it that uh, when, when we, um, you know, chop up, uh, 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 you know, str- um, genetic strips, uh, excuse me, uh, of DNA, uh, yeah, yeah. When, when we put restriction enzymes and, and, and we chop that up, why is it that we get like a, you know, a cutoff um, normal distribution? So I would, you know, go and like walk through, you know, the, the mathematics of doing that you know, uh, like that probability problem where you where you figure out where every, well, you know, what each of the points looks like. Anyway, um, so sometime down the road from that, I would go and uh, and pick on papers in the psychology building. I actually just had fun picking on psychology papers because, um, the, you know, I, I already had just sort of. Well, I, I I got a very very quickly bad impression the first paper that I read walking to the psychology building was somebody who had um, who had converted a number. Um, they'd log normalized the data series uh, and then taking the exponential to get back to the original numbers rounded each time and jumped from p equals you know uh, 0.051 to p equals 0.049. Um, and And I began to, to realize that, oh, you know, there are lots of scientists who really don't know you know math and statistics very well or or you know play with them for the purpose of, shenanigans so I, I would often you know leave notes on papers that were posted on the wall in the psychology building and uh sometime after that i got approached by somebody um asking me if i could write uh research papers uh, that was offered 35 dollars an hour this is 1995 and I didn't know what a paper mill was. I didn't even hear that term until years later. By the way, I didn't take that job. I went and worked at, a, at an auto insurance company instead. Yeah. Um, but uh, paper mills are, are a big, big thing and a big, big deal. A huge portion of people who come to American graduate schools, for instance, um, when people do investigations, a lot of them wind up you know, having somebody else write their paper. It's, it's, a, it's an overpronounced uh, signal uh, of corruption in some sense. Uh, or not in some sense, it just is an overpronounced signal. But if people want to know how how important this is or how big this goes, around eight or 10 years ago in Germany, it was found that two of the top five politicians, and I I don't remember how the arrangement was, who they were or what positions they held, um, but doctors in Germany have to participate in some sort of research. And two of those five politicians were doctors, and both of them were found to have had... Uh, Like paper mills, right? There, research papers.
3: Paper mills. What you're saying? They're basically ghost-written research papers, Mm.
1: right? Is that right? Yeah. And and they they might be real. They might be faked. I would I would guess that almost all of them are fake, on some level, to some degree. And this is part of the replication crisis. And we don't even know how much it's part, right? We we just don't know. But there's a lot of it in biology.
3: There has been. I've also seen a few like kind of. Troll a couple of the gender study uh, field with with really extreme papers that all get peer reviewed and and uh, and put through and they're they're all they're just a farce uh, that people are using to try to like test how far can they actually troll some of the journals with fake papers? Yeah, and that's on the extreme level,
1: you know. Yeah. And then in, in physics, we have um, you know papers that are just incomprehensible, and so nobody even knows how to evaluate them. Um, but that but right. that they get published. But biology biology is sort of you know in the middle of these vectors, in some sense, you know, um, you should be able to read a biology paper, uh, if if nothing else, uh, after having contacted a couple of experts, you should be able to read a biology paper at this point. So it's not like physics, it's not total nonsense, like, you know, uh, most or all of the gender study stuff. Uh, It's something different. And, and I think that it is at the center of corruption, because of the amount of money and the amount of sort of control of Control of science and control of the perception of science. that That's yes. my personal belief.
0: Yeah, I, I, I think this comment by uh, Shlomo Kafka is a great one. The journals just have to feel they're not trusted. And I think what he's getting at, you know, the court of public opinion. But this is interesting because I'm not aware of uh, any time prior than now uh, that so much of the general public is now actually reading or at a minimum skimming peer-reviewed or non-peer, even preprint um, publications because perhaps they feel something's not quite right about what they're being told in the news. You know, this has certainly been my experience. So I'm wondering, to what degree does the attitude or does the perceived trust coming from the public towards the journals affect the decision making of the journals? Because we've had, you mentioned The Lancet and the New England Journal of Medicine. There are some really high profile mistakes that have been made, especially yeah. early in the pandemic.
1: In, in the fear. Pandemic sphere. Yeah. Uh, I <laughs> mean,
0: frankly, the entire Pfizer phase three clinical trial, uh, you know, interim uh, results, like the fact that that it, 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 that's still burning out right now. Oh, yeah, but even the, the Barta bigger.
3: study that is, you know, most of the PIs in the Barta study have Pfizer money buried back in their conflict of interest. Sections. Precisely. Yeah.
0: So all of these things, like some of these are understandable by the mainstream or by the public as well, in addition to the much more, you know, familiar uh, scientific community. So that's my question is, how do you guys think currently these corporations of journals are are, are thinking? And is there an effort or is there an effect that perception on them can have in how they, you know, will they change their ways? Will they? You know,
1: know, I'm going to jump in. I'm going to change the question, Jessica. Suppose you had the option submit to uh, one of the journals that you've submitted to before, or if um, if there is somebody who has sort of organized a process similar to Kevin's, and and that process has been going on for a few months or a year, it's getting you know more and more traction as the process uh, is becoming easier to plug into. Uh, you know, Kevin knew more about blockchain than the than the average scientist, obviously. Um, but suppose you had the choice between these two processes. Um, would, you know, would you sometimes choose one or the other, or would you just choose one all the time? What would be your method of thinking through that? Uh,
2: Yeah, I I would definitely go with Kevin's. uh, The the, the whole peer review thing, even before, you know, we, we started to see how, I don't know what the word is, I guess corrupt is um, the right word. It's, it's never been comfortable for me. It's, you know, the, the fact that reviewers don't have to really reveal who they are and there's no accountability and there's no transparency in the process. It's always been a bit creepy yeah. for me. So it's like um, it, it goes it goes against the whole um like heart of science for me. So
1: absolutely. No, I'll just say I, I don't good. trust it. I don't respect it. Um, It's an
3: important uh, point that she raised, though, is the asymmetry of the process, which is the peer reviewers don't get reviewed themselves. So you can be an anonymous peer reviewer and just throw grenades at people's paper. As long as you can, you can like squid ink the editor, you win.
2: And Uh, that happens because there's a lot of social politics that people don't talk about.
3: Yes,
1: so I, yeah. I, I don't think, I think we can just leap past the you know letting the journals know they're not trusted the journals know they're not trusted I mean we we have somebody like Richard Horton who's the uh, editor in chief right. The Lancet he comes out and says it <laughs> yeah yeah and he sort of preempts the whole thing right it's it's oh, one of those things right. where somebody goes I examine my biases this is like what no, we lost oh we no, oh no, no, <laughs> no
0: they got him no they got
1: him this is what I see somebody like uh, Z Dog do uh, on on his videos that 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 gives me the willies is, is he is he you know talks very carefully and slowly about how I examine my biases and then the person that he's sort of pseudo debating uh, with whatever straw man he might have erected that day you know uh, the assumption is well that person doesn't examine their biases oh come on you man. know, uh, <laughs> yeah. like, uh, you know uh, Richard Horton got ahead of the game by for years actually criticizing the whole system Okay, you're criticizing the whole system, but you're not really doing anything about it. And you know, wh- why don't you just say, "Look, we need something else." But th- this is it. This is something else. We can le- We when- we don't even have to let the journals know anymore. We don't respect you. We don't trust you. Um yeah. You know, there there is there. We can establish a movement. And this is something where, you know, I, I'm going to send this video. I'm going to send this interview to a whole bunch of my friends in cryptocurrency. I'm gonna I'm gonna poke those buttons. I had a, a student um, uh, write me um, actually. You know, I, I'm going to bring this letter up. I, I, my very last uh, student who is uh, headed to Stanford computer science program um, was telling me that what he wants to do is use blockchain for, for some sort of purpose that, that, you know, helps the world, that, that sort of solves a problem. I'm going to send this video to him and, and see what he thinks, because, I mean, you know, who knows, maybe this will be his issue. Maybe he'll, he'll send it to other friends. I'm sure he has a whole bunch of bright friends, given the, the circles that he runs in. I'm going to find that you guys can continue.
3: Yeah. Well, you know, the thing about Richard Horton is he can say such things because he knows there's nothing that at least the public can do about it. He's not dependent on public funding per se. Uh, He's got, he's got, he's got uh, mostly academics feeding him per paper, 3000 to $5,000 to publish. And he's got advertisement money coming in from pharmaceutical and biotech companies. So it's, it's only, uh, unless we, we, we change that dynamic, do I, do I think they get disintermediated? Um, because I, I do agree, a lot of the public has, has come to recognize that, hey, if I, you know, they're educated in a variety of different fields and they read some of these papers and realize, oh my God, these things are garbage. That doesn't pass simple statistical testing. What the hell's going on? This is what's driving our NIH system. Uh, so I do think the public has is, is, is become disenfranchised, but I don't think it's gonna, they're going to necessarily feel that at New England General Medicine. Uh, or El Al- 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 Sevier, the-, the revenue streams are going to keep coming, much like mainstream media seems to still be like held alive as this zombie that's just simply funded by, by the pharmaceutical industry at this point as a propaganda engine. Um, so I-, I think unless we disintermediate them and cut them out of this so that it becomes a real peer-to-peer peer review where you just are seeking out on a network people who are qualified that can review your work and you incentivize them however you choose and everything's put public things are hashed onto blockchain, so it's immutable. Uh, I think uh, certain platforms that kind of build around that concept will become reputable over time, and uh, they won't have any way for their revenue streams necessarily influence those peer-to-peer connections. Now,
1: yeah, so the text may be a little bit small here, but this is... Um, this is uh, when I stepped away from education, I continued to mentor students. And this is one who just graduated high school and he's starting Stanford, um, computer science next week. Um, but yeah, you know, he, 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 you know, I was teaching him math and in parallel, he was focusing on uh, learning how to program. He, he has a, a phenomenal GitHub, um, you know, with, with hundreds of, uh, of, of, you know, pushes a year. Um, but he says, you know, he wants to found a startup to solve a real problem. And he's also, you know, he's learning, uh, you know, smart contracts and blockchain, And um, yeah, you know, this is this is people wonder where these solutions are going to come from. Uh, But what I want people out there to know is, is the amount of knowledge that the younger generation has about all of this stuff is more than than older people probably realize. You know, those of us who are 40s and 50s and 60s, um, you know, we have 18 year old kids learning how to program on the blockchain, right? Um, We have a lot of 20 somethings who have managed projects there are people out there and one of the things that we're going to have to do is is you know connect the generations together i think the pandemic has been a pretty big generational divide in many ways but if 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 we can you know organize the community and let people know you know it it doesn't even matter what somebody might have thought of remdesivir (laughs) or or what that debate might have been but you know there, there are a lot of young young people out there who are interested in in creating something that would you know, cut away bad incentives or, you know, cut out corruption or solve certain problems, regardless of who agrees with what on issues like the pandemic. So we can have solutions on the way, but we need to bring, you know, we need to bring the entire community together to do it. The knowledge is out there. The the, the tech ability is out there.
3: I think you've got a, a captive audience that's willing to entertain new, a new system. I think most of the scientists right now that I know are excellent at what they do, but this whole publication thing is a nuisance for them. And if there's a better system that emerges, they'll, they'll jump on it. We're um, already starting to see, like, even some of the preprint servers are becoming filters. Like, BioArchive filters papers now. And you start to look around how what some of those, like, moderators are, the the, the folks who, who run BioArchive, and they're, they all have the, you know, the Ukraine flags and the, the you know, the pronouns and they're, they're you can tell their ideology is getting into their filter, right? And that, that's right. going to pollute, uh, you know, an objective truth set is by having 100%. those types of political ideologies get involved in like what papers are considered woke and which ones aren't.
1: Yeah, I had a friend actually do an investigation into somebody who commented on one of the bullware hydroxychloroquine papers. And, uh, and you know, I, I think the evidence lays out pretty clear that the person who was commenting is, is a fabricated person. And uh, and, you know, I I don't want to say what his conclusions are um, because it's speculative, of course. um, But, uh, you know, it it looks like a corrupt system. And we know this happens. Um, You know, what uh, Kevin, in in your um, talk talk with the Texas Blockchain Group, you mentioned um, that there are fake peer reviewers uh, and that we see this more in China. But, you know, we probably see it everywhere.
3: Yeah. I think I think it you know everyone likes to you know blame it on China but <laughs> that that's uh, yeah sock puppet so in, in in some peer review systems I don't want to cast a broad net on all of them because there are new systems coming out that are that I like that are starting to improve like F one thousand has open review where you see the reviewers names and their stuff all goes public and it's a different mm-hmm. model I like that. Uh, at the same time, you'll find it's really hard to find reviewers on that platform because everyone's time is scarce. When they know they have to put their name on it, they know it's not going to be a quick review. They're going to have to spend like a weekend doing it. So it's, it's harder to recruit people, but it does produce a better better um, content. Other systems, uh, you give them a list of people you think would be good reviewers, and they go and pick and screen them. Some they'll say, yeah, they're too close to you. They've worked with you in the past. All right, these five we're going to go contact, and maybe three of them will come through. Well, you can feed them with a bunch of lists of your friends or anonymous people that you set up, you know, sock puppet, orchid ID accounts, everything else, and um, and get papers sent to other people that you're in control of. Uh, so there's been some concern over that in peer review. There's been concern over um, copying and manipulation of images that, you know, some people on Twitter spend a lot of time dissecting, but uh, there's a lot of tools in the cryptocurrency space that, you know, hashing these data systems and putting them on time stamped onto blockchains can help sort these problems out to see that, OK, this is this is an exact replica of another data set that's somewhere else in time. Um, so they're, they're, and, and then, of course, there's there's times when people will put other people's names on papers that have higher status just to get them through the review system. They don't always agree to it and they call out later, hey, I didn't agree to be on that paper. And,
1: you know, and, and you know, a, the, the, the blockchain does. It, the blockchain gives us an automatic way to study relationships. If people are worried right. about relationships, if relationships are ever called into question, you know, you can just look at a graph. I mean, you know, when Jessica Rose publishes, uh, she will have a key associated with her identity, right. just like she has a, a profile on research date. Um, and, and, but except that no one would be able to spoof that without, you know, a password that is essentially exactly. uncrackable. And, uh, and, and because of that, um, It'll be very hard to spoof identities, um, you wouldn't be able to spoof them for very long before they were called into question, probably, but then you would be, uh, you would be able to just lay out a graph of the relationships that people have. And if there are relationships that look overly close, being involved in, you know, repeated review of each other's work or something like that, you know, that that could be like a hey, you know, and, and it, it might be realistic. Sometimes uh, uh, science gets so specific that there are only four experts in the world on a topic or sometimes just one, if it's really bleeding edge, right? So, um, but yeah. but it, it'll all be plain and transparent and we will see it.
3: And what scares me about the current system is that uh, just like you can get canceled off of Twitter, you can very much get canceled out of like the review system. Uh, like, you know, once you get labeled as like an anti-vaxxer, and you start submitting papers to other places. Um, all of these people talk, and they're like, "Oh, that's that anti-vaxer. Don't review their paper, or bury it, or, or, or um, you know, bounce it back to them." You know, so they the, 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 It's a very. I, I find a very vindictive club, uh, in many ways. That if you fall outside of Vogue, um, you'll. And you see, you can see this this day what they're doing to Wakefield. You know, you know yeah. whether you. I've not gone deep into his work, other than to know that I've seen. Some of the the stuff that was thrown at him that was completely illegitimate from from Buston Stephen Buston is a total crook on this on, on this mark. He he testified for like half a million pounds or something, half a million dollars I think against him, uh, arguing that his test had all these defects in it. And those same tests are in the current pandemic thing that he backs. The pandemic coronavirus tests have all the same flaws as Wakefield, uh, and he he was on uh, you know on record completely um, tearing him apart saying if I were on the other side of this, I'd come to the same conclusion. It's not about the money. And here we are many years later, he's on the other side of it and he's not coming to that conclusion. Right?
1: Yeah. Blockchain so, will remove this method for engineering consistent consensus.
3: Exactly. Exactly. It gets all those games, I think, out of the picture and, and, um, and hopefully
1: get us back to ground
3: truth.
0: Well, guys, we've been talking solutions this entire show. This usually would be the time I'd turn and say, what solutions do you suggest? So given that, let's just ask for final thoughts. Jessica, what do you want to leave people with today?
2: Um, It just seems like a really good path forward. Uh, You know, it, it addresses the fact that we have a problem with the peer review system currently, um, and also offers a solution. Um, it's, it's it would benefit everyone because it's based on transparency. So, yeah, I I, I think uh, Matthew's idea to just like, you know, put this out to as many people as possible is fantastic.
0: And what before we turn uh, to Kevin Furry's final thoughts, where do you want us to direct people to find more of your work today, Jessica? Uh,
2: well, I, I have a new Substack page called. Jessica5b3.substack.com. That's the Jessica variant. <laughs> 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 yes, and
0: that, that link uh, is in the description. It should be the first or second link um, uh, in the description of this show. So people should go there. And now go, Kevin, go ahead and
1: fess up. Were, were you created in the lab?
0: Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, the question is, totally. a Chinese lab—is it a Chinese lab or an American lab? It's on a beach. Unless, no, it was like quasi
2: Canadian American lab.
0: Ah, very good. You took a trip through Winnipeg. Okay. <laughs> very good. <laughs> that's A little inside baseball there. Um. Anyway, like all right, that. Kevin. How about you? What do you want to leave people with today? And then, where can people find you? Uh, they can find
3: me at medicinal genomics. That's where we work on all of this cannabis and fungal genomic stuff. But uh, there is a page on that website called CIBR, which kind of outlines this, um, this theory, this, this concept of how to do peer review differently. And I encourage anyone to try it, mutate it, change it. Uh, I don't profess to have the best way to do it. I just I just think we need to experiment with new methods here. And we got to get ourselves off of this. Um, This uh, antiquity system of uh, always going to these journals, expecting them to hand out our credits and our points. The gold stars really aren't from the journals. The gold stars are from when other scientists reproduce your work. Science isn't about peer review. It's about reproduction. Uh, Yes. Let's uh, keep keep the eye on that game and forget about getting the little gold stars from from Lancet. Because in the end of the day, if it doesn't reproduce and it's in Lancet, it's nothing.
1: I love it. Me, it, it. The tides of history are amazing. Uh, Kevin, it wouldn't shock me if, uh, if if, 20 years after your death, you're known for that more than any science you might have done yeah. because, <laughs> because all your experience in science, and, and that, that's not to diminish any of it in any way, but all that yeah. experience in science um, led to a moment of understanding technological solutions that could push forward all of science, more than any one researcher might could have. So, you know, let, let's hope that that's a seed that grows. That's what I want. Well, hey,
3: that'd be great. I, I thank you. It's a, it's a tremendous compliment from you, Matthew. So, uh, I'll I'll take that with
1: pride. All thank right, you Kevin, Jessica, so gotta... for joining us. All right,
3: thanks.
0: We'll talk to you guys again very soon. Okay. Yeah. And... Take care. Um, okay, Matthew. Um, You know, uh, this was very interesting, and it did. We were talking at the beginning how there was a chance this would get a little technical, right? And we have some guests who are so proficient in what they do that sometimes we have to slow down and reconnect with the audience. I thought this, I thought Kevin and Jessica both did a great job using both sides of the jargon,
1: you know? Yeah, both um, of them are so smart. Both of them, both, you know, there are a lot of people who are smart, but um, both of them in particular have have that kind of broad smarts where they can apply it to, you know, both different areas, but then they can also step back and, and you know, put, put some things in plain language at times. Um, yeah, uh, you know, great conversation, great people to have on.
0: Agreed. And so just before we wrap up and this may be a fun tradition to start, we've done it once or twice, but I wanted to pull up a couple of comments that we didn't get to um, real quick Uh, on rumble daily 53 asked, will we ever reestablish trust in our institutions? Uh, You know, I will, I kind of think trust isn't really the solution we want. I feel like, you know, at least blind trust, it seems like that's what we're trying to fix is is now we don't need to trust. We can understand how the system works and with solutions like Kevin's, Trust won't be necessary.
1: Right. And sometimes people re- refer to cryptocurrency as like tr- a trustless solution. And, uh, and sometimes people refer to like Bitcoin, for instance, as money for enemies, meaning that you can make a transaction that is sort of, um, non controversial over the relationship and that nobody has to worry about anyone stabbing anyone in the back. Um, you know, uh, blockchain technology, Bitcoin technology, cryptocurrency technology, when it's done right. Uh, it removes the burden of of having to work through the trust game, which is a very costly game and a very difficult game. And so you can just uh, you can engineer solutions that just have the right incentives and the right security level over over you know the, the intent of of building a trust network or, or trusting in in what you see in front of your eyes, right? It's all more transparent. Um, and and there are better ways and worse ways to do it. Uh, if, if we do it wrong, We will have a centralized blockchain system, in in, in which case uh, maybe the NIH is controlling what all can go through the blockchain and deciding, you know, what gets erased and censored. And, yeah, that that defeats the entire purpose of blockchain. The purpose of blockchain is to decentralize control and have an uncensorable network in which, you know, whether or not people are right or wrong, whether or not people, um, you know, uh, lied or fabricated evidence, at least it is on the record. And we right. can all view it and understand what it means. So um, it can be done the right way and the wrong way, but it's the right way that that I think has the structure that is going to win for us. And I think that that's you know one of our better best hopes in untangling all of the problems that we've experienced during the pandemic and and, and all over science.
0: Yep, and 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 beyond science, the same the same control mechanism that's coming in various forms now are being used in other aspects of life. You know, uh, well, access to cash, uh, banking, travel. These are all things that are, and health, just health in general. Um, so, you know, the technology is coming, but how will it manifest? How will we apply the solutions? How do we make sure it's not in anyone's hands in particular? And I just want to follow. daily 53 uh, says, my husband is an MD. He's dismayed. Um, to a very great degree. He was in practice for 45 years. Where does one find truth? Well, I think in conversations like this, not specifically always with us, but in this kind of conversation with people with as many different perspectives as possible. So you're already on the right track Daleen. I think. Um, And I wanted to bring up one more thing, which was Menticide, who said on Rumble, you should all be on Joe Rogan podcast. I couldn't agree with you more, Menticide. So if you have them on speed dial, hit them up, get them to email yeah, you know,
1: invite them over here. You know, we'll have them on ours.
0: Yep. That's a good point. I, I think we've reached the point where YouTube partners, man, like how much bigger can we get? <laughs> and we've had our first video censored. So <laughs> um, in any case, I'm going to talk about that more on Friday. I think uh, any final thoughts before I uh, wrap this up?
1: No, this is a fun conversation. Um. I wish I could have. Uh, I, I wish we could talk with uh, Kevin and Jessica every week. um yeah. You know, uh, may, maybe we'd eventually run out of topics. But you know, the the, the two of them have been so involved in in um, you know in, in science during the pandemic that they can speak on a lot of different aspects of it. And you know, people should go look and see. You know, the stories. Um, you know, they they both sort of blogged them on their Substacks. What has gone on with uh, research? You know, how has it been held back? And maybe also check out uh, uh, Charles Rixie's um, story about how some research was fast tracked in terms of SARS-CoV-2 origins, while others were, you know, held back or you know, delayed. What uh, to create an appearance of consensus in science? And this, it, it's really going on. This is the way yes. it works.
0: It is. Well, let's wrap it up there. Ladies and gentlemen, support the show by becoming a paid subscriber to, uh, oh, did I pull this up? Come on, where are you? Okay, well, by becoming a paid subscriber to the Rounding the Earth Substack, .substack roundingtheearth.substack.com, it is the best way to support the show, not just the Substack portion, but also to ensure we can continue making awesome videos and podcasts like this one. If you're watching on Rumble, which I highly recommend you do, you'll see in the right the Rumble Rants, where a bunch of you have been uh, engaging with us the whole show. You can also leave a Rumble rant which is a paid comment anything you can afford to give is wonderful it helps sustain all these various platforms you run you can now do the same on youtube as well but on rockfin they have a fun five dollar tip button they make it nice and easy for you but most importantly just by watching you are supporting the show and we have right now 41 people watching live on rumble that had hit 50 at one point um and right now on youtube we have 17 that had passed 20 at a certain point. So folks, thank you so much. Um, this has been, uh, again, a learning experience for me, certainly I think for Matthew as well, these always are. And that's frankly why we do these. So I will see you back, uh, on Friday for my rounding the news news roundup quick, uh, peek sneak preview. Turns out China's got monkeypox now, and they're telling people not to touch foreigners. So that should be an interesting conversation and look forward to seeing you guys again very soon. Goodbye.